Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership around the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. Our work includes helping leaders to identify the disruptive trends that are impacting them now and will impact them in the future. Then we develop strategies to help them transform themselves and their organizations to continue to thrive and contribute. I am delighted that today our guest is Jeff DeGraff, and we're going to be talking about creative mindset, mastering skills that empower innovation. Jeff is both an advisor to Fortune 500 companies and a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. His creative and pragmatic approach to innovation has led clients and colleagues to dub him the Dean of Innovation. He has innovation programs in public radio and public television, and his new book, The Creative Mindset, Mastering the Six Skills that Empower Innovation, was published in September. So everyone can be creative in their own way. Creativity skills can be learned and developed. The creative process is iterative. We generally fail many times before we succeed, especially in creative ventures. We learn from those failures and approach the next experiment with new information and improved understanding. And this idea of experimentation is one that we have and continually discuss on this show. So I'm delighted that Jeff is going to continue that theme and how experimentation helps us build creativity. So he joins us today to share with you how you can tap your individual creativity. Jeff, welcome and thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Maureen. Thank you. So do you want to tell our listeners anything more about yourself before we jump in? No, not necessarily. Let's get to the conversation. Okay, great. So segment one is going to start with what are some of the challenges we're seeing. So can you give us an example of how you have overcome challenges in the past? Yeah, well, first of all, how I came to be in the position that I am is is all about overcoming things. So I'm one of those classic kids who was kind of uh, didn't like school very well. I was a very poor student all the way through school. And because when I was a senior in high school, I had a lot of scholarships to come to colleges. And what happened was I'm the first year because of Title IX that you actually had to take an SAT exam. And they didn't know this until very late. So I took it. I took the late exam like in March. And I got called into the vice principal's office. And I remember this vividly because they had called Princeton, New Jersey. They were very concerned that I cheated on this test. I had the second highest score in my city. I grew up in Kalamazoo. So I went from being this really dumb jock to this kid who all of a sudden wasn't a complete idiot, as they kind of thought I was. So when I got to college, I got a job as a teamster. And it's sort of at every turn, what I had to do was to learn how I learned, which is, a, which is something that I think we don't really emphasize enough with our kids. I needed to learn how I learned. And the way in which I did that is I started paying attention to what kind of concepts I understood and how I understood them. So, so what I had to overcome was what we would now call ADD or dyslexia, both of them. I learned that I don't learn that way. So I learned to draw pictures and I learned to listen to things. And I learned, and I learned that I had an apparatus to be intelligent, but it wasn't the same one everybody else had. And so what started happening for me is I had a very unorthodox way of looking at problems and solving them. 
And, and in the right situation, those things became developed as sort of special gifts. So right off the bat, I think when you start talking to innovators, a lot of them have had to overcome maybe a physical disability or a, an economic disability or something, but they have to get over something. And certainly that's what started my career, learning how I learned. So how does that ability to overcome challenges help you be a better innovator? Well, innovation is a form of positive deviance, Maureen. It's, not, it's doing <laughs> something different. And society is all about conformity. Think about this for a minute. Think about all the people that you went to high school with, and you can hear them think. You know what they're going to post on social media. You know how easy it is to sort of co-opt their thinking. So one of the big things you have to understand is if you're an innovator, by definition, the ordinary or the institutional way of doing things is going to come after you. So what happens is innovators will often come to me and say, you know, I have this great idea, except, you know, I'm trying to get through my organization and my organization is political. <laughs> I just have to laugh. Yeah. You know, it's hard to invent something new. It's harder to sell something new. And it's hardest to get large groups of people to do something new. That's the hard part. So the way you overcome things is very simple. Number one, fail often, fail early and fail off Broadway. Don't fail in front of everybody. You know, I have these labs, these Innovatrium labs. You know, high projects here for very, some very famous projects, very famous technologies and innovations people are familiar with started in my labs. I'm not saying I did them. There are people in my labs who did them. But what's interesting was at the beginning, you're off Broadway and you're making every possible mistake because you're working through the deviance, right? Second thing you should remember, it's not about the 80-20 rule. In fact, I think it's a terrible rule. The Pareto rule is a terrible rule. It's the 20-80 rule. Maureen, think about this for a minute. The 20-80 rule means it's easier to change 20% of your organization 80% than it is to change 80% of your organization 20%. I want you to think about when people really change. They're getting a divorce. They go bankrupt. They lose their health. Why do people change when they're in trouble? Because the risk of trying something radical and the reward of staying where you're at is reversed at the edges of the bell curve. Think about Apple. The first $2 trillion company was trading at below $5 a share in 1997. When you're almost dead, you take the safety off and you play with a live round, right? So the notion is you can't take on the man or the institution head on. It's designed to crush you. So you have to play the perimeter and gently move to the middle. And I can give you a very good example of this if you've got a minute for a very contemporary story. Well, I want you to think about the United States and COVID-19. And by any, by any, objective criteria, we have failed miserably. We can only be compared to Brazil, Mexico, and India. This is the United States, right, for crying out loud. And our military and our, our education institutions failed because what they tried to do was control something that was deviant or outside of the way institutions handle things. But while this was going on, there were 595 creativity clusters that began to emerge to attack this problem. 116 phase one trials to see if the FDA is gonna approve it. 54 phase two trials. We have eight in phase three. We've got two that cross the finish line, one that'll cross the finish line in two weeks. We think that there's 16 behind them. So the notion is those mechanisms by which we tried to control everything institutional in the middle, we have to admit, I don't care what your belief system is, it failed miserably, horribly. People died, right? On the other hand, 
I want you to think that developing a new vaccine for a virus usually takes 10 years for a new virus, 10 months. Drop the microphone, 10 months. Can you imagine being at the FDA and trying to tell people it's gonna be longer next time? 10 months. Every therapy that's gonna come after this, this is how you do it. But you got, had to find a problem that was a common mm -hmm. problem that was a crisis. And that was the key. That was the time the innovators showed up. Great example, I think, of American innovation. That's a brilliant example. And the point that we are much more open to creativity and innovation when the old doesn't work. Perfect. Yes. And so innovators always exist at the margin, right? We're always waiting to get into the game. Because when things are normal at the middle of the bell curve, right, risk and reward is not the issue. Things are going well. But oh, well it's enough. also a lesson in life. Oh, there was a plague. We could read about plagues in Herodotus and the histories of the ancient Greeks. Weather disasters, wars, these are things that are perennial. And we forget that they're perennial. And we have to have innovators so that when those events happen, they're sometimes called trigger events. When those events happen, we're ready. And the good news, I think, from this is for all the failure, the innovators here were ready. So are there, quote, special people who are innovators and we just need to wait until we're in a crisis to pull them in? Or do most of us have the opportunity to innovate maybe in less dramatic ways because I'm not going to create a, a cure for cancer or for COVID, and yet I am helping clients when they individually or organizationally hit a bump that they're able to innovate with support. Yes, this gets into a, a much more elaborate answer that I'm gonna give you, but the answer is yes and yes. I want you to think of this. I want you to think of when you took piano lessons and you sat next to Mozart. You're in the basketball team and Michael Jordan was on your team or you're in your physics lab with Einstein. I want you to think about, some people are gonna be more talented in certain areas, right? They have, that's just the way life is, right? Um, but the other thing is that it's not just who has a level of competency, it's also different areas. I think people should think of themselves like superheroes. Everybody is a superhero, but all the superheroes have very different strengths and weaknesses. And the superhero combinations that you need to put together to actually defeat anything big has to be diverse. You have to find the skills that you don't have in other people. So I'm going to push back and say, yes, everybody is creative and can become more creative. What they can't be is different than who they are, right? That's the key. And where people fail is they try and become everything. And nobody is everything. It really does take a village or whatever you want, whatever metaphor you want to use. It takes a group of people. And it takes being honest with yourself. So I'll give a great example. I built the Innovatrium, you know, my own money across the street from the University of Michigan, very much what an artist or what we call the green position does, forward position innovators. The problem with forward position innovators is we pick up every pretty pebble on the beach. You know, we're always into something. So we need people to kind of be more feet on the ground. How is this whole system going to work? So the people that I've hired over the years, I have some amazing people who I work with. The best people are people who really don't agree with me. They're very much, we can't scale that. We have to build like this. And Maureen, the key to this is not compromise, it's hybrids. These different skills produce hybrids, which is what innovation is really about. A third way, a better way, a new way. So yes, everybody is creative, they can become better, but let's not mistake that for a God-given talent. So can you say more about hybrids? Because I realize that compromise 
is much better than you win or I win. But to me, there are oftentimes those dynamic tensions actually create something new that didn't exist that takes us out of the compromise zone. You get half and I get half. And we, in fact, create something better. Is that what you're calling a hybrid? I am. That's exactly right. And if you start thinking about higher order thinking, it comes when you have to do two things at the same time. So one of my favorite examples is healthcare right now. Okay. You know, you've got the two arguments. One person, one side is saying everything should be free market and it's going to be technology. You can afford it. You get healthcare. The other side's, you know, no, it's all about egalitarianism. Everybody gets healthcare. Well, really, those are our options. There are a million options in the middle of that, right? And that's the way forward. So in a sense, what we have to get rid of are these stupid ideological arguments. This is what's called dominant logic. And when we get dominant logic, it's like taking stupid pills. We can't see anything else. So the first step is getting beyond the dominant logic. And how you get beyond it? Get off your social media because all the people like you are not very helpful, right? They're not helping you grow anyplace. Surround yourself with people of different ideas than you do, but are actually have fond regard for you. They're not here to fight with you. They're here to, to discuss things with you. Those kinds of things where you have to get yourself out of that dominant logic phase. Well, and right now, especially in our politically charged environment, understanding that my Google feed is full of things that look like what I Googled. So if I want to learn about the Pope and what he's doing, now I'm continually fed Pope stuff. Not a comment on the Pope, just if I Google something about the Muslim religion, I'm going to then start getting a feed full of that. And the point that I don't see what is outside of my dominant view, because there is enough on the internet to continue to populate and reinforce whatever I think. That's why you have to be conscious of it. I think you hit the nail on the head. You have to be conscious that you're being fed certain things. And are you, are you a curious person? Are you interested in the other? So when I work out, I have two television sets and I watch two very different points of view on the news. And then I end up watching the CBS Evening News, which I like. But I watch two different points of view because what I'm trying to look for is why do people believe that? Why do they think that? What else is here? I appreciate your point that we seek out different points of view from people we respect and who respect us. I don't go look for a different point of view from someone I'm going to discount anyway because I think they're an idiot. That just Correct. annoys me. Learning from people for whom I have a high regard who see the world differently is really helpful to keep me out of the sand trap. Yeah, and it's, it's our only hope for the future. Integrity and, and facts. So perfect. I invite our listeners to think about where are you experiencing blind spots because your dominant logic is unquestioned and you may not even recognize that it's a dominant logic and unquestioned. To you, it just may seem true. And yet other people in your circle see something very different as also equally true and see you as missing the point. Today, our guest is Jeff DeGraff, and we're talking about the creative mindset, mastering skills that empower innovation. So Jeff, can you share with us some of your insights that you have about creativity and innovation based on your decades of experience? What would you like our listeners to take away with regard to how they think about creativity? Yeah, I think there's, there's really two things that are really important. One is having the right mindset in order to do things. 
sort of like preparing yourself for meditation or anything else you do in life. And it really has a lot to do with paying attention to your instrument. So for example, I'm a morning person. I get up at five o'clock every morning. I write at five o'clock in the morning, but sometime around two o'clock, I hit a wall. I'm not very creative anymore. So the first thing would be, when are you creative? When is your, when are your biorhythms doing that? Being prepared to capture ideas. You know, how many times you had a great idea and you weren't ready? I carry around little pocket things with me all the time and I keep notes. Paying attention to cues that your mind gives you. So my, my big thing is this, I'm a, you know, I'm a product of the 60s. I'm at the very end of the baby boom. I hear music. So I could be thinking very carefully about a problem and if I hear a soundtrack in my head, you know, a lot of us get that. It's with the secondary mind function, right? But if I hear it, I stop and go, what's the song? Why is this song playing? So first, be cognizant of what's going on, you know, in that three and a half pounds that sits on your shoulders. The second thing I think has to do with some very basic skills. And, and I write a lot about this. And so over the years, I was very lucky in that I was the last graduate student of Rudolf Arnheim. Now, those who study design thinking will know that Rudolf Arnheim wrote the book, Art and Visual Perception in the 30s. He's really one of the founders of the field. Actually, the founder was uh, his mentor, Max Wertheimer at the University of Berlin. He had a couple of famous students. One created positive psychology. They created what we call creativity, right? The field of creativity. Well, one of the things that we look at in what your mind does is their skills. They're not tools or steps. They're skills you need to have. Let me tell you what the biggest one is. The biggest one is clarifying, getting the problem right. I trained consultants at the top consulting firm in the world in New York for a long time. And the real problem with really smart people, Marie, is they believe they know the answer right off the bat, and they never do, right? So step one is, can you in fact know what the problem is? And it's very hard to find the problem. And then there are sort of levels of skills, like the first level skill, and I use the acronym or the mnemonic device CREATE. So C is for clarify, getting the problem right. R is for replicate, which has things like biomimicry. Can you go look at nature? Can you see how it's automatically designed? Why does the submarine, nuclear submarine, have a rudder that looks like a whale fluke? Well, biomimicry, right? Elaborate, which is what most people take to be creativity. And that is your brain assimilates and accommodates. So very quickly, you can brainstorm. Now, the problem with brainstorming is it often just creates a lot of noise. You know, how do you elaborate in a way that actually connects you towards uh, the, the solution you're looking for? That's our E. Associate, which is my favorite. I love thinking in metaphors. I think what's called analogical thinking or sometimes called adaptive reasoning. It's sort of the technical term for this. So something is like something else. And this is a way of taking complicated ideas and putting them together into solutions, right? Which can be annoying because that means you're not a sequential thinker. What's called monochronic thinking versus polychronic thinking. Polychronic means eh, a lot of stuff happened at the same time, right? That's what my, my brain works. Then translate is the T, which can you tell the story? And this is narrative, right? This is the whole study of narratology. Do you have a narrative arc? Does the story hold together? which incidentally is an extremely complicated operation of the brain. Yeah, that neocortex is sort of working overtime because now there's characters and plot and folk color and what happened to Frodo and, and you know, mocking Jay and all that kind of stuff. And then finally, evaluate. Did you pick the right ideas? Can you build these ideas? Can these ideas get to scale? So the first one is having the right mindset, but the second one is developing skill or tradecraft to build. And the only way you learn that, Maureen, by doing it. C1, 
do one, teach one. So do two, see one, do one, teach one. It's where you learn to become a doctor. It's where you learn to become a, an innovator. It's part of the reason I built these Innovatrium labs because I felt like young people weren't being apprenticed. I love the acronym. And let me ask a couple of questions then. So starting with clarify the problem, that makes perfect sense as a consultant. We are, as what I hope I am a good consultant, we're supposed to first make sure that we are clear on the root problem, not a surface issue. Replicate, I get that. And then the associate thinking metaphor, it sounds like you're talking in my language about synthesizing, pulling from a lot of different areas and learning what I can. In our leadership competency model, we talk about being intellectually versatile. What did I learn from African drumming that helped me be better at team facilitation? Because the drum master facilitates incredibly well. And I learned more from that than I did from facilitation course. Yes. And what I would say is you're dealing with two things here. Elaborate means your brain naturally assimilates and accommodates. It creates a lot of ideas. Your brain is capable of just incredible production. The associate is then how do they go together? So there's kind of a diverge and converge thing here going on here. If you can do both of them together, meaning drive your brain forward and backwards, this is a very good skill. I'm not sure I can do that, but I remember reading De Bono's work, gosh, 20 or 30 years ago about the brainstorm, let your brain go crazy and let the group go crazy. And then at some point, it's one of those thoughts that seems almost crazy that sparks something that will actually work. I'm sure that's the absolute neophyte reiteration no, yeah, it's great. It was a great example. It's a great example of how it works. Thank you. So then I've got the translate. How do I take what I've synthesized and create the story that helps me create the product? Is it the story that helps me create the product or solution? It's both ways. And it's very great that you said this. I can't tell you how many times, you know, over the years, I'm, I'm brought into a lot of these situations with venture capitalists. And mm -hmm. a lot of times somebody will tell the story of their product and they'll do a great job till you start looking at the way they told the story and you go, you've got the product all wrong. This happens to me all the time. This product shouldn't be a standalone product. It's part of another product. Or this product shouldn't be in this market. It should be in this market. You've done all the thinking about how everything works, but what you got wrong was the story of what it is, right? And so that story, when you get it right, goes back and changes the product itself, changes the solution itself. So it's highly iterative, back and forth. And that makes sense, especially from a VC lens that I'm funding someone to create something to sell. And if I have a cool thing, but I haven't gotten the market right, or I haven't gotten the value proposition right, then as a VC, I don't want to touch it. And I want to add to that. This is the big problem with innovators. Every, innovators are like show and tell kids in kindergarten. Look at my stuff. Nobody cares about your stuff, your stupid stuff. They care about solving their problem. What problem does it solve? And so putting it in another way is, what question does your answer solve, right? Does it answer? And that becomes the big issue. And I like to tell people, you know, when it comes to why isn't everybody interested in my thing? Everybody reads their own horoscope first. That's the reality of the world. So the notion is you have to think through how does this help what they are trying to solve here or get them in this new opportunity that they haven't considered. Those are the things you need to think about. Because 99% of the stuff I see in VCs are like, I'm not going to fund it. 
you know, what you've done is you've tied everything down so carefully that it's a nice project, but I'm not going to get my multiplier by investing in this. This is the classic mistake innovators make. So is the story then how it will be used? Do I take the position of the and consumer? Do I take the position of the production department? Yeah, it's a great question. You have to ask yourself, who needs this? To whom is this a must-have product? So I'll give a great example. So I worked on a product, this is going back like 30 years. I worked on a product where somebody was able to create a disposable dot that told you the temperature in which things were at. And they were going to use this in a medical situation for combat. And we went all through the VCs and they did all this. And they said, well, how much do these dots cost to make? And tell me what they could actually tell us. They told us, and I said, this isn't a combat situation. This is for over-the-road trucking. This is for products that have a shelf life. You put it on, if the temperature went blah, you know, the color turns red and it stays red. Now you know that product is bad and what products are good, right? Became a huge product. There's a million examples like this I can give you, things I've worked on. But the notion is it was the right idea in the wrong market. That's the challenge. So the story then helps me hone in on where I belong, where I don't belong. And to your point, then iterate and see if I can expand my uses as well if I'm trying to create a product. Think about your own life story. Think about how, as you think about your life story, at every, every new year, you know, mm-hmm. people start to take stock of their life. The story you tell yourself is very different from year to year, but you're still the same person. You still have the same experiences. So why is the story changing? Because you've got slightly different perspectives because of your experience. And you're sort of walking around your life. And you're trying to find an angle that makes sense to you, not only in terms of where you've been, but also where you want to go, right? So the same is true with the product or service or solution. You're just doing the same thing. What is the way here in which other people are going to get what this really is, right? That's the key to this whole thing. And what I love about this, I want you to think about people often say, well, the iPhone was the first smartphone. That's ridiculous. It was very late. You know, people forget it was very late. Well, what made the iPhone so special? Well, Jobs... When I was very young, I got to be an advisor to Steve Jobs on what was called Applied Integrated Systems. I was a very, very young man. But what I loved about what he was able to do is he'd look at a gadget and he'd find the story of the gadget. Very few people, you know, Helena Rubinstein could do it, Walt Disney could do it. Very few people can do it. Where you look at it and go, you know what this really is? It's this. That's what he was uh, particularly good at. And I think that last skill If you don't have that translate skill, nobody knows what you've done. So interestingly, I think about this idea of I can tell my own story and I first tell it to myself. So when I change the story about who I am and my position in the world as a leader, I can also change my mindset and my own positioning. So if I'm the product when I change my own story, I change my value proposition. Yes. Well, think about where we started this broadcast. If I told the story about what an utter failure I was growing up in terms of academics, and then I told you about how the challenges I've had my whole life, that story sounds like I'm having a real difficult time. But if I tell the story from those are things I overcame, and that develops a skill set for me, and that allowed me to do some other things. That became the backstory that allowed me to have this superpower or whatever it is. Then it's a different story. Not only to who I'm telling it to, and it's not a lie. It's not a lie. It's just looking at the story in a different way. And it's not even putting the best light on it. I'm talking about my failures, right? I think what happens is you develop a new confidence because you realize that it's a competency that has been developed. And I think that's true with any product or service or solution. 
You have to keep working it until you find the center of it. Then you have to tell that story. But the problem people get is they tell a technical story. You tell a technical story, you're dead on arrival. And then I did this, and then I did this, and I went to a meeting, and then this doesn't, it has this. Who cares? No one cares. And they shouldn't. So I do like the idea that you clarified just now. You can tell about the challenges, not that you were perfect. As I listen to younger leaders, when they listen to folks or look at folks like you, it looks like you must have arrived on a magic carpet. They're just looking for the carpet rather than the fact that you have had your fair share of challenges and obstacles and failures and learning. So to the last point, we put it in practice and we make changes. And how we then circle back to the story influences how we and others see us. I couldn't agree more. And just what you're saying, I have so many junior faculty that come in from all walks of life. They fly into town. They want to talk about how I did this as if it was effortless superiority. And what they learn is it was a bar fight. And I lost a few teeth in it, right? It's a bar fight. And, you know, you got to be clever and you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. Maybe that's a negative metaphor. I don't know. But the notion is it wasn't easy. And it's still not easy. If you're a deviant, the more you move up in the world with your positive deviance, the more people come after you, right? The only reason to innovate is because you want to make things better and new. If you have a pathology to innovate, it's better than drinking or gambling. Then innovate. Find an outlet for your desire or need to be better and new. I agree that no matter what my success, life is not easier at all. It's difficult differently. And to your point, and I'd probably word it differently. I also associate myself maybe with being a positive deviant and I'm doing something that I think is valuable in the world and what better to do than this. It's what I'm uniquely qualified to do. And it's not always better than drinking, but it's better than drinking excessively and fighting. The great Zydeco artist Clifton Chenier has that great song. He says, man, what you is, be that. Yeah. Do what Clifton Chenier says, be that. Well, especially if what you do is of value to someone in the world. Yes. And as our listeners, I invite you to think about what are you and how can you be that as your superpower? Today, you are listening to Jeff Graff and Maureen Metcalf. We're talking about the creative mindset, mastering skills that empower innovation. Jeff, you were talking about being a professor at the University of Michigan and the challenges you still have every day, especially being someone who is an innovator at your core, living in a university setting that I will assume is slow to completely innovate. I think the challenge is this. Universities have existed since the Middle Ages. There are two reasons to have a university. The one is the good continuation of knowledge our culture, who we are. That's highly compliant. There's a lot of connection. And to a much lesser degree, to invent new things, to create new things. So there has naturally been, historically, attention of this. But something has happened, I'd say, in the last 10 years that really has put people like me on our heels. And that is, I'm the end of that baby boomer group that not only had academic credentials and wrote books and did research, but also did a lot of work in the world. We used to call these people pracademics. 
you know, pracademics, you're out building stuff. You know, you mm -hmm. want to know if that rocket will work? Well, let's build a rocket. Let's build a computer. Let's, and I'm from that tradition. I have a PhD in a technological area, in a technical area. So to me, I came up in that system, but the system now rewards a very different thing. It rewards much more, did you get AAA publications out of this? You know, it's much more sort of refined how people advance through the system. So the whole notion of actually building things in practice is really being lost in our top universities. And it's not just in business schools. I hear this from engineering colleagues of mine. I hear from medical colleagues of mine. So to me, the interesting part is, my belief system, right, which where I push back, just because I went through the system, I made it through the system, right? My pushback is we're here to add value to our community, because really being a professor should be about a couple of things. It's about teaching students. It's about creating new ideas and publishing those new ideas and then applying them or helping people apply them. And we're sort of missing that last piece. So to me, the way I deal with that, I don't want to say it's a wonderful way. What I do is two things. Number one, I have a loose affiliation of other professors who really are amazing and they do the same thing and we know each other. And although we're going through COVID right now, you know, we go have coffee or beers together so that the formal organization we've worked around. I want you to think about, we were talking about COVID, how these things organically emerge, these creativity clusters. They didn't emerge through the government or through universities. That's nonsense. They love to take credit for stuff, but they didn't do it. That happened organically. The second is I built these labs across the street. Now, who does that? So many people think these labs belong to the University of Michigan or the one they think in Atlanta belongs to Georgia Tech. It doesn't. They belong to me, right? Me and my wife, who I write with, Stanny DeGraff, but the other academic in the house, right? So what's interesting to me is that all I did was build a playhouse across the street, and I brought students into the playhouse. So I created an alternative. Now, I'm not saying your listeners need to do all this stuff in the face of bureaucracy, but you know, if you can't get something done in the company, you can go have coffee with some friends. You can do the work that the company can't, do the creative work the company can't, right? You can also find affiliations or groups you can work with who are outside of the company or the organization to get things done. So the good news is if you start changing what your boundaries look like, who you have to deal with and who you don't have to deal with, but I could tell you one thing you should never do. If there are no, no, no people, and there's a functionally restrictive system, they're gonna say at some point, if you become successful at this, you should come in here and innovate. Don't. And the reason is simple. Because even though they wanna accommodate you, the dominant logic of the system is functionally restrictive. It's hierarchy. It's making sure that everything is controlled. And what will happen is you will eventually, you'll lose faith and you won't be able to innovate in that system. And it's not a criticism. This is the hardest part. You can't hate on this. The system is designed the way it is because it's trying to control at scale. That's what systems do. It's not anybody's fault. But the notion is you can't expect it to do something that it's not designed to do. That's why innovators, I always say innovators live on the perimeter. Let me tell you a story about this because this, this will make sense to your uh, listeners. The first time I ever got to ride in first class. I'm very young. I know if your listeners know this. I'm one of the guys that, one of the original people that created Domino's Pizza. I was one of the original uh, executives of the company, right? That built the company. And I retired when I was 29 from there. So I'm 25 years old and I've got moved up to first class. I'm sitting next to a guy who's taping papers on the back of a leather chair with medical tape. And I'm, I've never been to first class. So I'm thinking, wow, 
I need to get medical tape. And I noticed that some of the papers were kind of healthcare things. So I'm chatty. So I start talking to this guy. It's a red eye. It's the middle of the night. And I'm chatting with him about healthcare stuff. And I had read the first New York Times insert on Finland Jack. This is the beginning of HIV when we're learning about AIDS. We're learning about AIDS for the first time. So I'm chatty. I read the whole 54 pages of it. And this guy acts like it's fascinating. And then I noticed one of his papers says something about virology. And I said, oh, oh you probably know all about this. He said, I, I'm, I originally lived in Ann Arbor. And I said, yeah, I'm going to Ann Arbor. He said, it's a great town. I said, you know, I hear there's a conference on virology this weekend. He said, there is, and I'm going to it. So now I'm beginning to become suspicious, Maureen. And I then looked at him and I said, you know, a friend of mine told me that Jonah Salk may show up. And he turned to me and he smiled. And he said, I heard that too. And I thought, oh God, I'm sitting next to Jonah Salk, the Nobel Prize winner who developed the polio vaccine, right? I felt about two inches tall. But he told me something that no truer words have ever been told me. I said, I left, turned down an Ivy League position to go work for a guy with a pizza company, $20 million pizza company that became this big pizza company, right? It was a lot of fun building it. He said, when you start doing really innovative work, no one will notice. He said, then when they notice, they'll tell you you're doing it wrong. After that, they'll tell you what you're doing is immoral. And in the end, Maureen, they'll take credit for your work. And that's true. Innovators are invisible. And if you want to be an innovator, the, the thing is, at the beginning, no one pays attention. Then, they, then you're wrong. Then you're do it's immoral, right? I've been through all this. And then it's, oh, it's us. It's our model. It's, we've been like this all along. And when, you, when we get together, the innovators get together. And these are really famous innovators when you get together. You know, I got to meet Kelly Johnson at the end of his life. The guy developed the P-38 Lightning, the YouTube, the Blackbird, the Caraval, I mean, the most famous aeronautics engineer in history. And it's really funny because everybody holds him up, the founder of Skunk Works, look at this guy. But it wasn't like that. What people have to understand is that you're not going to get social confirmation. You have to be internally or intrinsically, you have to exhibit self-authorizing behavior to be good at this. No one okay. is going to love you. I want to reiterate that because it, it is so foundational that this is largely a solo endeavor and certainly the rewards are intrinsic rather than extrinsic until you get to a point where you can sell what you've created and it is recognized as valuable. Yes. And I would say even people like me, once you get extrinsic, you reinvest it into the intrinsic things. Why build these labs? Why spend the money? Well, because how are you going to get to the next place? You know, I hope I'm not the only one. I, I don't want to retire. I hope to be making a positive impact to the very end, right? So I think even when you talk to these people who've done well, a lot of the innovators I know, don't get me wrong, you, you want to live on the nice side of town, but what you really want to do is continue the journey. And the journey, as you said earlier, is to add value, to do things that are interesting and move our society forward, whether it's impacting COVID or flight or whatever is interesting and compelling to you at the time? Because it sounds like your innovations have been across a broad range of spheres. I have two friends who worked on the, one of the successful COVID vaccines. It's a wonderful conversation to talk to them because part of them, I'm working harder than I've ever worked before. And the other side is, I'm so alive. I'm just so into this. And I'm like, yeah, wouldn't that be a great blessing for all of us? Find something in life that gives you energy and stop doing things in life to take your energy.
So if I'm leading a company and I've heard different approaches to this, and I hear the same thing that you're saying fairly universally that innovation can't happen in the same department that's delivering the daily work. It needs to either be a skunk works or often a startup that then gets acquired because the startup has the freedom to focus on the innovation and the company is always making the decision, do I continue to fund or do I kill it? Yeah, and I would even say this, even in my own practice, you know, we've been, I've been in over half the Fortune 500 at this point in my career. So we just deal with these really big companies. Nobody calls when things are good. The good news is there's always a company that's uh, not where it needs to be, right? Very occasionally, you'll get the other end of the bell curve where somebody's a very enlightened leader and they'll realize that this, the, you know, the market's going to turn or something in four or five years. But people in the middle don't call. And why should they? They don't need to. So if I want to build innovation into my company, I say I run Domino's Pizza right now and I want to continue to innovate, or Pizza Hut, or Donato's, or whomever, and I see that the market is continuing to evolve, we're obviously in the midst of what the futurists are saying, the next decade is going to bring more change than we've seen over the period of human history. So anyone who thinks they're not going to see change is, is an industry I haven't worked with yet. How do you advise those leaders to be able to make innovation possible at the speed it has to happen for them to thrive. Yeah, I'd say three, th three things, but I'd like to start with one thing. I want to take that off the table about this is the greatest age of change ever. When has it been? That's the human condition, right? You're a farmer in Lyon, they march back through the Great Crusades and two thirds of your village dies. So, you know, the Romans are here, pick your time. That is the human condition. Change is the human condition. Innovation is the table stakes, three things. Number one, change the gene pool. You have to surround yourself with people who are different than you are. You, you have to. Otherwise, you're not going to have new perspectives on things. Two, widen the array. Take multiple shots on goal. Don't bet it all. Small, little bets, highly diverse bets. My favorite movie ever on innovation is Moneyball. You don't have to like baseball. Just watch Moneyball. It's about, there's it, a lot of churn at the beginning of this, a lot of Failure, people asking for your job, people mad at you. That's the part people don't get. And finally, the third part of this is pay attention to the horizon. You know, when people jump in on something that's an innovation, they're always late. They're inevitably late. You know, all the people are in Bitcoin now really late. The people started Bitcoin and people are going to make money on Bitcoin, right? By the time that wave hits, you're very late to the party. So I was coming back a couple of years ago from Miami. And this uh, lady sitting next to me is really mad. And she's basically saying, you know, I'm mad, I've lost all my condos, I'm financially in trouble. I'm just trying to be nice to her. She said, what do you do? I said, well, I have this radio program and this television. She's like, well, I don't watch radio and I don't listen to the television. I don't listen to radio, I don't watch television, I don't read anything. And I'm like, and you're upset that you didn't see that this whole market was going underwater, right? The point is, I think if you really wanna be good at this, pay attention to the horizon. Things that are, that are anomalous, things that don't make sense, that are, then you have to really work through that. So pay attention to the rise and change the gene pool, multiple shots on goal. Beautiful. So for our listeners, there is so much more to learn from Jeff. So where would people learn more about you? Two places. One, jeffdegraff.com. There's a lot of free stuff. No one will ever bother you, right? And two, 
I'm one of the original LinkedIn influencers. So if you follow me on LinkedIn, I write something every Monday. There's a lot of stuff on there. And what's your latest book? Uh, the Creative Mindset, Mastering the Six Skills that Empower Innovation. And is one of your books better for leaders? I think the best book for leaders is uh, The Innovation Code. And I assume those are available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble or... The airports, <laughs> whatever. Great. Thank you so much, Jeff. And for our listeners, I hope you are thinking about what Jeff just said. Pay attention to the horizon. Where on your horizon are you seeing the largest amount of change? And then how do you use that to change the gene pool and continue to make those bets so that your organization continues to thrive? Thank you for listening to us. This is Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. Please share the show, share what you're learning and put it into practice. Most importantly, like us, follow us and continue to listen and update how you lead. You are among the ones who matter at this point in history when we are seeing dramatic change and everyone has to jump in and understand their superpowers, be who you can best be and make the impact you can make to make our world better. Thank you for listening. <music>